Good evening. I drew the short end of the stick and I get to preach to you. <laughs> now, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word this evening, Mark 10. And we're just going to look at a few verses. Mark 10, 46 through 52. As you're turning there, a few notes on this passage. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of a blind man seeing. And it comes in the context of Mark asking the question that Mark asks and answers again and again. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we encounter in this, this text? And this is Jesus' last miracle before he goes to Jerusalem. And as we read it, it might seem for a moment that it's odd and out of place. The action is coming in Jerusalem. Why is there one more miracle? But as we turn here this evening together and see it, I hope that together we see with clarity and maybe with a degree of hope the beautiful picture of our Savior that is offered for us here. So would you stand this evening for the reading of God's word taken from Mark 10. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we turn to it, would you give us insight? Lord, would you show us what is right, true, beautiful, and good in this passage? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this evening? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe some of you have seen this uh, app that is available now, this application, and it's called Be My Eyes. Now, it's for those who are visually impaired, and those who are visually impaired can download this app, and when they're in a situation that they need to see, they can pull up the app, talk to it, and it will pull up a live person on the other side that will be their eyes, quite literally. And you can imagine how the conversation goes. Oftentimes, there are normal things, like just trying to find something in somebody's pantry. And, or it might be a card or something that comes in the mail, and somebody on the other end of the, the screen reads this to them. And the question often goes is, as the phone opens, as this app is open, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That's the question we see here in the text, isn't it? What does Jesus want to do for us? What do we want from Jesus? Really, that's where this, this text focuses our attention on this blind man who has asked this enormous question. What do you want from Jesus? Now, you hear that question this evening, I'm sure there's probably a flood of answers that you could fill in there. Maybe hopes for you personally, hopes for your ministry, hopes for your family, hopes for your career, disappointments, any number of things might come rushing in when you're asked, what do you want me to do for you? I'm sure most of us have a, a fine-tuned answer to that, whether we verbalized it or not. Maybe it's reflective of our, a really beautiful thing. Maybe it's reflective of our greed and our lusts, but we know how we would answer that question. The question for us is not how we do answer that question, but how should we answer that question? And that's what we see from, from Bartimaeus. As we see this question, what do you want me to do for you? We need to say, first, who is the one who is asking this question? 
Who is asking this question? And we see as we turn to the early part of this passage that it's Jesus who asks it. But what do we see of Jesus in this passage? Well, the context is he's leaving for Jerusalem. He's just come out of Jericho. And he's going towards uh, Jerusalem to go to the cross, to go to all the things that he has predicted now three times in the Gospel of Mark. He has charted the course before him, and he knows where he is going. And he's accumulated a crowd that is going with him. We see this early in the text. A great crowd is with them. And it seems in the language that the crowd is not simply just also pilgrims, but in some ways they're even beginning to connect to Jesus. They're going with him. They're noting something about him. And it's in that context that we see Bartimaeus. The scene's familiar for us if we've read this text, but picture again this blind man who is sitting there with a cloak, maybe a few coins, dirty, dusty, all the things that you might anticipate sitting beside a roadside. We get his name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, and he's sitting there. And in this moment, as we see Jesus walk by, what we see Jesus' compassion Bartimaeus just hears the noise, hears this crowd going by, and he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's obviously the rebuke of the crowd. It goes back and forth as we see through this, but we see Jesus show compassion. In this moment, what does Jesus do? He actually stops on the way. We're used to that. We know Jesus is going to stop, but, but slow down just for a moment and remind yourself that Jesus actually stops for this man. This man who isn't strategic. This man, he really doesn't have anything to contribute to the kingdom in the disciples' eyes. And yet Jesus stops. Why is this miracle here? Well, Mark, as he records Jesus' narrative, uses these blind men at various points in his story to sort of parallel and mirror the fact that the disciples are often spiritually blind while there are people who are physically blind. As Jesus has begun his journey to Jerusalem earlier in Mark 8, there's a picture of a man who is is healed of sight in a gradual, progressive way, and it mirrors the disciples who still are are sort of in the dark. They don't quite know what is, is going on here, but even now we begin to see that Jesus shows this compassion. Compassion to someone who seemingly would have no reason to deserve it. But even as we see this compassion, we also see Jesus has has power. Bartimaeus recognizes something here. Bartimaeus declares that this is the son of David. The first time we've seen that in the Gospel of Mark. He is the son of David. He's from Nazareth. He knows the stories. He's heard of Jesus. He knows what Jesus can do. And he knows that this one who comes, comes with power to answer the question. Bartimaeus recognizes something that the disciples at this point seem to have missed. And we see that reflected in verse 18, or 48, where there is this rebuke. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent, those who were going with them. But he cries out all the more. They rebuked him. It's interesting, just before Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, back just a few verses earlier in this uh, chapter 10, we see the picture of the rich young man. Literally, as Jesus is going out, the young man runs after him. And as you picture these scenes and everything that happens in it, you can see that the disciples probably are hoping that this rich young man kind of joins them. As they go to Jerusalem, he's he's a good guy to pick up on the last sort of throw of this journey. And yet, he's rejected. And this blind man who asks for mercy is, is brought in. Jesus stops. He waits. He brings him in with a warm welcome, it would seem, as we'll see in the rest of of this story. Now, there are a few things we can take out of this. The first is just to to ask the question of, does our ministry reflect, even in a small part, the compassion of Jesus? 
Maybe it's a little tangential, but how easy is it to dismiss the person who is uh, not very strategic? We use that, that word sometimes to say about people or folks or strategies. But here Jesus is compassionate to the one who is the very lowest here, the one who has really nothing to contribute to this journey moving forward. And Jesus stops and he calls us to stop, the unnoticed people, the difficult people. And the question for us, in part, is does our ministry reflect his compassion and does it point people to his power? But even more than that, our, analyzing our own ministry to look at uh, ourselves and say, how do we actually approach God? Do we approach God, do we approach Jesus with an understanding that he is both compassionate and powerful? None of us would negate that. We've probably all affirmed that. Maybe we've even preached that. Maybe you've confidently told people that we can approach the throne of God with boldness. We love that, don't we? That we can approach God's throne with boldness because of what Christ has done, his atonement, justification, that we have an advocate for ourselves, that we can go and approach the throne with boldness. But do we do that? Do we actually approach the throne with any degree of, of boldness? My first job ever was uh, delivering the Sears catalog, the wish book. Anybody remember those? I think, I was asking my sister, but I think I made 17 cents per wish book that we delivered. And I grew up in Canada, so it was cold. You put your winter jacket on, and you went and you delivered these. But the best part of it was getting home and opening your very own wish book, right? The wish book, Sears catalog, back pages, had all of the toys. And as an 11-year-old, you'd go and you'd circle all of the things that you wanted. And it was a really wonderful moment. But the next moment had some trepidation to it. Because once they were all circled, what did you have to go and do? It was time for handoff. You went and brought it to mom and dad and said, here is what I want for Christmas. And in my little 11-year-old heart, I knew that a lot of the things I had circled, they weren't, they weren't going under the Christmas tree. I knew that there was a budget. I knew that there were four kids in the family. I knew all of that. And so I, I, I tempered my requests, so to speak, when I went and asked my parents. But there's something in this passage that I think that, that calls us to, to ask with boldness before God. Yes, I know that as prayer works, it shapes our will to conform to God's will, but there's also a part of prayer that is, is boldly going to God and saying, Lord, in your compassion and your power, would you do the things for your kingdom that you promised to do? In fact, our, our shorter catechism, as you know, says this, that we are to come to God in holy reverence and confidence as a child to a father, ready and able to help us. It's so what we see of the one who asks here, one who is ready and able to help us. He knows the outcasts and he welcomes them. That we can actually go to God and ask him for good things. Sometimes maybe in ministry we, we've taken on this idea that, that somehow since we are under shepherds that maybe we should shoulder maybe a little bit more of the, the load. But God's busy. We never say that. We know that's theologically untrue. But functionally we operate like God is not there for us. We need this gospel account to wash over us, to show us the beautiful picture of a God who is compassionate and powerful. As he asks us this question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if that's the question, if that's the one asking, what are the answers that we get to this question? It's not in the verses I read earlier, but I'm going to read three verses just a little bit earlier in Mark. Mark 10, 35 and following says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, who we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. 
Mark puts these questions beside each other for us to evaluate your responses. The one is of a distorted sight. These are James and John, and they come to Jesus with this question, and you know the text. They, they ask and they try to secure the question in advance, the answer in advance, and then they ask the question, we want to be with you in glory. Sit at your right and left. It's okay, it's up to you. You can pick which one's on the right and the left, but we want to be there with you. We want to be there with you. In a sense, what they're doing is they're, they're coming with their, their list. It's implicit in the text that they're saying, Jesus, we've been with you for three years. Foxes of holes, the birds of the air have nests. We, we've been with you when we didn't have any of that. We followed. We've been faithful. It's time that we, we got a little something. We got some re- rewards. We've been hungry. We've slept in places that we didn't want to. All of these things. And in fact, we're in your inner circle. We were there at the transfiguration. We're, we're the ones you love. We're, we even have nicknames that go with you. We are the sons of thunder. You should give us something. Our dedication somehow should secure a reward. And it's in that context they ask them that same question, what do you want me to do for you? It exposes the desires of their hearts. And maybe the desires of of our hearts too. Ones that desire to be at the forefront. To lead. Not just because the church needs people to lead, but because we enjoy it. Because it's something that we enjoy getting the, the accolades from. The other disciples really are, are no better, as we see in verse 41, where they come and they're indignant. Not indignant that they, they somehow, James and John, were, were so audacious to ask this, but no, they kind of are indignant that they got in front of the line. They cut Peter out. They went straight to him. We, too, can have a distorted sight, a disordered desire that, in a sense, what they did is they took their eyes off Jesus. They took their eyes off the gospel, in a sense... We could argue at this point they haven't seen the fullness of the gospel. They're still living in an old kingdom values where pride and achievement are the things that really we gravitate towards. They've asked the question, they've been asked the question, and they really have failed to answer it as they should. Now, we, we, we like to be hard on James and John. It's really easy. They're set up there, we can just sort of kick the stool out from underneath them. But I think there's a part of us, as we we look at this, that that we can look at our lives and our ministries and things we've done, and we say, it's actually been really hard. Ministry hasn't been easy. My life hasn't been easy. Whether you're in ministry or not here, my life's been hard, and I've been faithful. So maybe it's time that God gives me a little something back. Maybe, Maybe, in a sense, you could say, Christianity's been really difficult, and you want your money back. Maybe maybe you saw this. uh, This happened a few, few weeks ago in the English Premier League of soccer. Uh, there was a, a team, the Tottenham Hotspurs, that lost in dramatic fashion to the Newcastle United. 21 minutes into the game, they were down five goals. This wasn't supposed to happen. This was supposed to be a close game. After the game, some of the players offered, and they actually did this, to pay for the tickets of their fans who had come to the game. As it works, they have an allotment. So there were 3,000 fans that had traveled to this game, and because they were trounced so terribly, they got a refund. Be nice. But maybe some of us look at a text like this and we sympathize just a little bit with James and John. Maybe we want a little bit of a, a refund on our years of ministry. It's been too hard. You say, what, what's really going on here? How is this so, so difficult? And, and we, like James and John, can get this sort of distorted vision of who Jesus is and this distorted vision of our own selves, our own value. 
to see that we should achieve, that we've maybe, as Romans says, thought more highly of ourselves than we ought. Maybe we, like James and John, have gone to God with our, our list, our track record, and said, God, would you, would you do something here? The good news of this text is that it doesn't leave us just sort of nasal-gaving at James and John and our own lives, but it moves our eyes quickly to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, the man who sees, the man who gets it. Picking up the text in verse 49, we see that Jesus stops and says to him, and says to them, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Again, his compassion and his power is here. And Bartimaeus springs up and goes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus, casting off his cloak, leaving whatever coins he may have had behind. And then we get this moment of Jesus asking the question, what do you want me to do for you? It's an obvious request, and it's an obvious question in some ways, but there's a lot of theological freight and weight behind, I think, what is transpiring here. It's a really beautiful, beautiful moment. As he asks earlier for mercy, he now asks that he would recover his sight that he would see, that he would have a restored vision. There's a simplicity of the call, but there's also an immensity of the response. What happens? There's this immediate thing that happens. As he says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And I know you're familiar with the book of Mark, and you know that that phrase, your faith has made you well, is not the first time we've seen that in Mark. It's happened before several times. It's this picture of someone seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing with eyes of faith. One commentator said that in this moment, two blind men see. Both the spiritually blind man, but also the physically blind man sees Jesus. This faith is a reflection of one who sees Jesus, the son of David, as he truly is, the one that he needs mercy from. And what happens? He's he's fully restored. Jesus restores his his sight. And we're so used to that, but what is Jesus doing in this moment of giving restored sight? Well, he's putting back all of the the damage of the fall. He's reversing all of this. Remember, Jesus could have declared his power through miracles in any number of ways. He could have done just dramatic signs. He could have done these things that just surprised us and amazed us. But his miracles are about healing. They're about undoing the reality of the fall, of rebellion, of sin, and restoring the creation that he inaugurates here, but will fully do as he comes again. And as we know, it's about what Jesus will go and do as he goes to the cross, to eradicate sin, to make that payment for sin, so that what Bartimaeus says here is actually a reflection of the gospel, that he is one who knows that he is a sinner in need of God's God's grace. And so this passage calls us to embody the posture of Bartimaeus, that we would actually understand that this is our story too, that we can, with eyes of faith, look to Christ and to see that we can hear words like this, go your way, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you, that we would come and remember our need of mercy and grace. We would never move beyond that. And yet, even as we see that, Bartimaeus gets even a little bit more than I think he, he asked for. It's easy to see uh, this healing as the pinnacle of the story, but the last part of verse 52, I think, is significant. What happens there? 
It's not very dramatic end at the beginning, it would seem. It says, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There's drama in the immediateness of the miracle. But think the fact that he is following it. That he follows on the way. That's, that's not just sort of he followed them down the path. That in Mark is discipleship language. He's following them. He is now a disciple of Jesus. This, this vision that he sees, that he sees Jesus in a sense, think about the very first thing that Bartimaeus sees. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. We read in John's Gospel, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. He sees God in his fullness. He sees not just what he, he thought he needed, but what he actually needs. He needs Jesus. That's the, question, that's the answer to this question. What do you want me to do for you? It's not simply about sight. It's not just about mercy. It's about Jesus himself, and that is the one that we need. Maybe it's too much to say he sees the, the beatific vision, the happy vision, but there is a sense that in this moment, Bartimaeus experiences something that all of us long for. I think throughout the Old Testament, there's all of these sort of references to the fact that we can't see God and live in the book of Exodus. But then there are these other moments where various people, Jacob, Moses, have these encounters where the text says that he sees them face to face in a mediated sort of way. Hebrews 12 reminds us that without holiness, no one can see God. What do we need to be holy? We need mercy. We need grace. What does Bartimaeus call for? He calls for mercy. And what does he get? He gets sight. In this moment, he sees what is supremely valuable to him. He sees Jesus himself. And that's what we need. That's what our people need. That's what all of us need. We need Jesus. And that's what Bartimaeus gets. And so he follows him on the way. The very sight of Jesus is what animates him and moves him in this miraculous way to go and turn his life over to this person. The very fact that we have his name indicates that he's more than likely one who followed faithfully with Jesus and was part of the early church community because he has seen his Savior, that mercy and sight go together. At the beginning of this, this sermon, I, I mentioned the app Be My Eyes. Maybe if you've followed this, you know that AI is threatening to take over this app. So instead of there being a person on the other side of the app, there will just be you know, the interface and it'll help you and read the the screen. But as the article I was reading was, was interviewing some people about this change, nobody liked it. Because what were they missing in that moment when somebody asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? They were missing a person. In fact, the people that sign up for this thing say, getting that call is the best part of my week when I help someone. And if we just look at this as sort of a math problem of how he gets his sight and how the mechanics of that work, we, we miss the whole thing. We miss that this is questions not just about I need to be healed, but I need Jesus. And so for all of us, as we think about our weeks, our lives, our ministries, our hopes, and our dreams, they need to be focused here. They need to be focused on the reality that the gospel is true, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. What Jesus goes and does in Jerusalem is what gives us the hope that we can say, by God's grace, in the new heavens and the new earth, when he comes again, I will see him and I will be like him. And that seeing will, will, will be part of my transformation and the beauty of the mercy and grace that I receive is more than I can imagine. That's the hope that we have is we too need sight for the way. As we go and follow the way, as Bartimaeus follows the way, we have this hope. We have this beautiful picture of a God who is compassionate, who is powerful, who is not far off, but in and through Jesus, 
and even through this meal, draws near to us by his mercy and his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the fact that you stopped through Jesus in this moment on this roadside to show us the gospel, to show us that you ask us this same question. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, would we respond with an enthusiastic and full-voiced declaration that we want mercy and we want grace, but we want Jesus? Lord, would you make that more beautiful and believable to us even tonight? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a moment.